Here we go. Rejecting the screen, going ISO as we do every Thursday, the long-form edition with anybody and everybody associated with the NBA. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stanko is out West. And today we're joined by Matt Babcock, who's been around the NBA his entire life. Family is one of the, could even say one of the, the founding families of the NBA. And Matt's been an agent and now is running the sports media company Babcock Hoops. So just check out BabcockHoops.com and there's all sorts of inside stories, behind the curtain, player evaluations. It's a site with everything for everybody. Matt, let's start with this. Your first memory of, wow, this is what the NBA is like. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, kind of growing growing up in my family, cause it, you know, there's there's sort of different layers of my of my background and, and experiences that I had. So my my oldest uncle Pete, uh, who's nine years older than my dad, he's the one that kind of got got everything started with the NBA. And he uh, he was a high school coach in Phoenix. Um, took a volunteer scouting job with the New Orleans Jazz in the late '70s. What wasn't even getting paid. He just he, he scouted um, uh, Phoenix Suns games. It was sort of like an advanced scouting job. Um, he impressed those guys and uh, ended up getting a regional uh, college scouting job for the Lakers. Uh, and, and was really just kind of grinded it out. So, so he got hired um, in the early 80s by Paul Silas to be an assistant coach of the San Diego Clippers. And, uh, you know, and, and during this time, I, I, was, I was a young baby and everything. And uh, my, my dad was a college coach and, and really just grinded it out as a coach. And you know, we really didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have like this luxurious life of you know, living in the NBA. My, my uncle had just started in the NBA. Uh, but I, mean, I was a coach's son, you know, really grinding it out. And uh, by the time, let's see here, I was probably like eight or nine. My, my uncle uh, took the general manager job at the Atlanta Hawks. That's when I really started to get exposed to the NBA a little bit on, on trips to see him. I remember meeting Dominique Wilkins and I was like five, six years old and, um, you know, did, did a fist pound with, with Neek. And that was sort of that was that was sort of the moment I was like, hey, this is this is pretty dang cool. As, as you start to make your way up, at what point in your childhood, entering high school, what have you, at what point are you thinking this is something that I, I want to be a part of too? You know, I, I never remember a moment even questioning if I was going to work in basketball or not. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was literally born with basketball in my hand. I, you know, I was a coach's son, uh, you know, exposed to the NBA through my uncles. And my dad eventually went when I, you know, my dad joined the buff. He got hired by the New Jersey Nets when I was in seventh grade. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'd always, I'd always expected to be a coach um, or, or, or get into scouting. Um, the biggest surprise was getting into the agency business. That kind of just happened. <laughs> Why did you end up in the agency business? You know, I, I left the University of Arizona and I was, you know, 22 year old kid. I knew I wanted to work in basketball, but, uh, you know, I was really just, you know, trying, trying to find my way and get, get a good you know, starting point job. And um, I took an internship with Wasmer Media Group which uh, you know, was a big, the biggest sports agency in, in, in sports at the time. Uh, my job was to help, mostly to help with uh, pre-draft workouts. Uh, Dave Yeager, who was a, a D-league coach at the time, he and I did all of their, 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 their draft workouts. They had like six, seven first-round picks that year. Um, and then from there, I took a, a job as an assistant coach with a pro team in Italy. And it's just, it, was, it, it wasn't that great a job. It wasn't that stable. Um, and so I got offered a job by Excel Sports Management to essentially be a junior agent and groom me uh, to be their, you know, one, one of the, their next agents. And, then, and from there, it just kind of took off and I bounced around quite a bit. And next thing I knew, it was 10, 11 years later, and I'd, I'd been an agent for that long and uh, just kind of needed to, needed to get out. All right. So, I mean, I want to get back into family, your father, but with those pre-draft workouts when you're an intern, who are the guys that you were working out? So we had so they had Lamarcus Aldridge. He he stayed in Austin to, to work out at school. But the guys we had was uh, Brandon Roy, Sheldon Williams, JJ Reddick, Jordan Farmer, um, Joel Freeland. Am I missing somebody? Um, I think that was it. But yeah, we had we had a really good crew. And, and I was working with Dave Yeager, who, who you know who wasn't a big time coach yet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in terms of credibility, you know, he was just a, a minor league coach at the time. But man, he was really good. So I mean, from from my standpoint, what what a great learning experience. And it was. I was exposed to a, you know, a pretty fun side of of sports of dealing with first round picks right before their draft. So, so right before that draft with JJ was the DUI. How did how did you handle that as a as an intern and and working them out and and the agency in general? 
Yeah, so with JJ, I mean, he and I became pretty close, and I actually even went out with him a couple of times in L.A. He got the DUI. He left. It was right before the draft, I remember, and he went home, and he was just with some buddies. Um, it was just, I don't know, it was unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's still in a good spot. I think he was, what, late lottery to Orlando. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, he's done okay. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm, I'm – Well, no, no, certainly. I mean, his career has been terrific, and, and he's been in the playoffs every single year. And you know, it's going to take a little bit of a run this year to get the Pels to the playoffs. But do you remember what it was like as you know, being part of his agency and, and trying to work through that? Yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, I was a young intern doing mostly basketball work. I really wasn't that, that, that involved with any of it. I, mean, I remember I remember it happening and it being, you know, somewhat of a stressful deal for everybody, uh, mostly the agents. Um, but I was kind of the outside looking on it, really. So, Matt, is... I've always been curious about this from an agent perspective. How do you go about building the relationships for prospective college clients? Uh, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, I mean, it depends on the agent. I, you know, that was one thing that, that uh, made it easier for me to be in that world is that I was so well connected right off the bat. Um, I could kind of go about things differently than most agents. Most agents have to be so cutthroat and get really creative and, and get in early and deal with a lot of AAU coaches. And it's really it's really a slimy business from that standpoint. I mean, the recruiting is really what drove me out of the business. I, I just I got I got sick of it, um, even though I was not you know really dealing with it on, on the level of many agents are. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, most agents, they, they need to kind of get get down on the grassroots level and start you know, creating alliances with, you know, handlers, AAU coaches and. You know, people like that, and it's uh, they could get pretty hairy. What did what did you learn from from your uncles and Pete and Rob and your and your father Dave from their relationships, their dealings with agents on the NBA from the from the NBA side from the front office that they told you? Here's how you should go about it. Here's how you could be different. You know, my my family didn't really want me going the agency business. I mean, especially both my uncles. They they just they they didn't have a whole lot of respect for, for the industry and. They said most agents were were crooks to a certain level, and uh, I mean we, we we you know we've grown up having some friends that were agents, but uh, just you know as a business as a whole, they, they were um, they, they warned me you know that it that it was going to be rough, and and it was. Um, and so you know, as far as advice goes, I don't know that I don't know if I necessarily got great advice. It was more of just sort of a little bit of a warning, like hey, this this is this is a pretty tough business, and. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did it, you know, but it's just, it, it was, it was really hard. Yeah. So what were those rewarding moments? You know, when you, uh, when you recruit a player and you do it the right way and you sit down with, with the player, the parents, coaches, whoever, and they, you know, you, you lay out a plan and you kind of, you know, tell them about your background and, and show them how organized you are. And they, they, they choose you for all the right reasons. And then the player executes and you execute and, and you, you accomplish your, your mutual goals that's very rewarding to, to get some business done by doing it the right way. Um, but, you know, moments I had like that, that that's, that those were, those were good times. Matt, which players did you have while you were, while you were an agent? You know, so I, you know, I bounced around so many different agencies and I had different roles. Um, I, you know, I worked for several large agencies uh, as a young guy, sort of as a junior agent where I wasn't the primary guy. Um, I worked for Excel sports management where they had everybody. Um, then I worked for ASM Sports for a year, and they had you know Garnett, Billups, all those guys. And then when I really started to stepping into a role of kind of actually doing doing some legitimate agent work, is uh, I partnered up with David Bauman, who was who was a junior agent for David Falk, and you know so his business at the time was DB Hoops. Um, so we had Ron Artest, Paige Stoyakovich, Vladimir Radmanovich, um, and then I, I brought on uh, Jody Meeks, Smarto Samuels. Uh, I was involved with bringing uh, Devin Ebakes on on board, um, and so with with the guys that David already had with Artest and Sayakovich you know, and Andrew Bogut, um, I handled their marketing and, and just sort of like was more of an analyst, uh, you know, in preparation for free agency stuff. So I was involved, uh, but then the guys I recruited and brought on, like Samardo and Jody, um, I, I handled their day to day too. I mean, I did I did pretty much their whole draft. Um, the only thing I, I didn't do with those guys is David formally negotiated the contract. So that's when I really started getting going on, on being an agent. And then when I broke off on my own, um, I ended up having sort of a niche of fringe NBA guys, you know, second round picks. Um, and, and I did that strategically because I think you could sign those guys, um, you know, at a little bit more reasonable price as far as the investment on their training and whatnot. And so I had, um, 
Miroslav Radulovsov from Serbia, uh, playing the NBA for three, four years. Uh, Jordan Mickey, who we actually did um, at the time, it was the largest deal for a second round pick in NBA history. Um, and so I had a number of guys like that where I either you play in the NBA for a little bit, go overseas, and I had a ton of guys overseas. And so I, I sort of had like an import-export type type setup going on. On a daily basis, for the average fan, can you explain just some of the role that the agent has to play in terms of making sure that they're keeping their client happy at, at all times? Yeah, I mean, every agent operates a little bit differently. Um, I mean, I think the hardest thing is just managing the expectations, um, you know, whether it be for the draft or free agency. You know, every player, you know, thinks they're better than they are. I mean, that, that's pretty much, you know, standard procedure. I mean, all these kids right. are good. All these, all these kids are good players. I mean, you don't get to this point without without having some, you know, self-confidence. Uh, but it, 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 you know, becomes hard to be an agent managing these guys and managing the parents um, and, and you know, also the expectations of money. I mean, you know, a lot of these players, you know, come from backgrounds where they haven't been exposed to much money at all. And now all of a sudden, you know, everybody thinks they're going to be, you know, a max player and driving Bentleys and all that. And that's a small percentage of NBA players, you know. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, really, you know, kind of like managing, managing expectations from a basketball standpoint, what their, what their options and, and realistic opportunities are going to be. But also, too, trying to, trying to advise them and the parents of like, you know, of, of being – being smart with their money and, and how they're operating, how they're living their lives. And, um, it, it's, it can be really challenging. You know, obviously each player in each family is completely different, but it's, uh, it seems like each case has its own own challenges one way or another. Do you remember any specific stories in terms of, you know, those challenges with, with families and, and trying to convince them one way? Or another yeah i mean god it really it really is such a case-by-case deal but i mean we had one player uh, that had a stepdad that was super involved and, and tried to micromanage everything we were doing um and that that was that that was hard i mean you know trying to determine which workouts we were taking with teams and you know try to step in on you know micromanagement on the negotiations and the contract you know stuff like that so i mean you kind of get these like over overzealous dads at times um that, that that could be tough um and then you know on the flip side you've got um you know people that will you know want all kinds of crazy loans before the draft and you know to go um i mean like one kid wanted to go rent uh rent a porsche and it's just he was a fringe nba player you know stuff like that it's just you know, what are we mm-hmm. what are we doing here you know and uh <laughs> yeah, um good question yeah that, 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 that kind of stuff happens quite a bit unfortunately all right so you mentioned ron artest what years did you have Ron? Uh, let's see here. So, uh, so David Bauman was the primary agent. Um, let's see here. That was probably 2009 to 2011 or 12. And so we did, um, so I was, I, I just started when he was traded. What was it? He was traded to right, Sacramento from, from and then, Houston to and LA Houston. Um, and then what yeah. was interesting is that, uh, we also had Soyakovich. And so he was part of Soyakovich goes to Indiana. And so we ended up doing, and I assisted behind the scenes, um, with Stojakovic's deal to New Orleans, which is a huge deal. And then um, David and I helped uh, Ron go to the Lakers. And so we were there when he was at the Lakers and they won the title, uh, which was really, really fun. So how emotional was that for you guys as we all seen how emotional it was for Ron when, when he won the title? No, it was, it was amazing. It, it was really great. I mean, Ron was so happy. And, um, you know, you know, Ron sort of, or I guess Metal World Peace, right? It, uh, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a pretty misunderstood guy. I mean, he is a little crazy, I'll admit that. But he's a really good guy. I mean, I really liked being around him and dealing with him. I mean, very personable and just like a nice guy. Um, and so I, I was happy to kind of see him, you know, and, and be, you know, be a small part of helping him kind of get things back together after all the stuff in Indiana went so sour. Um, you, know, and, you know, link up with Kobe and they just they had a really good thing going there for a while. These days, so so many players will say, we understand it's a business, we understand it's a business, but we find out trades usually from Woj, or they'll see it on Twitter now. And <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about making sure that, and if, and if you could give specific examples, that you're letting your guys know that they've been traded before they find out anywhere, any, um, anywhere else? Yeah, you know, I, and I still one thing I do behind the scenes, I still consult for a number of agents. Um, I, I'm not part of recruiting or managing players and like that, but just help them advise on how to be an agent, run their business. And uh, one thing I, I tell a lot of these younger agents is that okay, what's 
the, the most important thing is when you have a player on an NBA team is that you need to kind of keep the, the lines of communication open with whoever the point person needs to be in the front office. Um, you know, and, and one example of why you do that is if something, you know, shakes, it's that much easier for that GM or assistant GM to call you and be, or text you, um, hey, just, just so you know, this is happening. And, I mean, if you hadn't talked to that team in, in, in several months, they're probably going to be a little bit more hesitant to reach out to you. And, uh, but, you know, the, the, the long story short, it, it's a challenging thing as an agent because, I mean, you're really at the mercy of the team. I mean, you hope the team's going to treat you with respect and kind of give you a head, heads up on what's going on. But, I mean, there's no guarantee. How much are you finding that, that things are changing in terms of the agents now having more, more power within the league? And, I mean, we can, we can use Rich Paul's name, you know, directly, but just in general terms throughout the league, how much are you finding that, that agents are having more and more of a say with players making more and more money and being more marketable? How much are you finding that agents now have influence over, over player movement? You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not so sure that they do. I think it's more the players have control. Uh, I mean, obviously there's been certain situations where Rich Paul has been influential. I mean, I, I think, you know, when LeBron was in Cleveland, I mean, the the negotiations for Tristan Thompson and J.R. Smith, I mean, we're all, we're all pretty clear that that, that they had a lot of leverage because of LeBron. Um, You know, I, I think Rich in those cases was just, you know, the figurehead of LeBron having the control. I mean, it's, you know, clutch sports is an interesting, interesting situation because it's essentially LeBron's agency. And so, I mean, LeBron's kind of, kind of calling the shots there, it seems like. And, uh, but across the board, I mean, you know, Jeff Schwartz has got a lot of influence. I mean, he's, he's really close with owners. I, I think that's sort of his angle is that he kind of goes straight to the top and has influence there. Um, but I, I really don't think it's all that much different than it was in the 90s when you had David Falk and Arn Tellum. It was power agents. That's interesting. You mentioned about with the, uh, you know, an agent being close to the owner. Are you seeing more so these days that because some of the new owners are younger and it's, they can, or at least players are trying to relate to them or they, the players themselves see what an owner can do for them, that players themselves are trying to get closer to owners than maybe in the past? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, Maybe, you know, some of these players and these, these agents are just getting a little smarter, figuring out, hey, this makes sense. To, if, if we can create a relationship at the top, I mean, this, this could be mm-hmm. beneficial for us. And, uh, I mean, Jeff Jeff seems to be the one that's doing that the most. Um, you know, as far as players go, I mean, you know, th- there's there's a number of scenarios where players and owners were really close. Uh, I, I, you know, I know with my dad, uh, it, it was working with the Milwaukee Bucks for 23 years. There was a number of free agency deals where the players were, were really close with Senator Cole, who was the owner for a long time. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these big, big deals, the owner steps in and be like, Hey, we're, this is our guy. He's staying here. This is my team. Um, I, I think that, I think that happens more than people realize. Mm-hmm. All right. So let, let's talk about your dad a little bit and being with the Bucks forever. Do you remember one of the, the first or maybe the most impactful decision that he had to make that he brought home and, and you could feel the weight of it at home? Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, uh, sort of what I alluded to before is, you know, during my, most of my childhood, you know, my dad was just a, you know, a coach grinding it up, moving up the ladder. Mm-hmm. So, it was, you know, in that world, you're really in a situation where, you know, you take what job you can get and you, you, you know, you pack your bags and you go. And, and so we were, you know, truly a coach's family, you know, bouncing around and, you know, uh, letting my dad follow his dreams kind of thing. And uh, I, I, the big turning point was, um, so he, he left college coaching, you know, took a regional scouting job with the Nets, um, I think it was 1997. So we moved to Phoenix, he was just a regional scout. He did that for one year. And then the real big move was uh, the next year he got hired, I think he was a, hired as assistant director of scouting the Milwaukee Bucks. And we had to move to Milwaukee, which we had moved quite a bit. We were all on the West Coast, they were originally from Phoenix. Um, and so that was that was a big decision just because that was a, a huge lifestyle change, uh, moving to the Midwest. Um, n- none of us had been there before. I, or I think my dad had been there before, but my, my family hadn't been there before. That that was that was a big decision for our family. But it was really there was no decision to be made. I mean, we, he was definitely taking it. It was just uh, it still was uh, an impactful move for, for our whole family. Did you even have a winter coat? No, I, I, I don't even think I had any <laughs> pants. I, I wore like I wore shorts all year round in Phoenix. <laughs> Matt, when was the first time you heard the name Giannis Antetokounmpo? 
Um, yeah, so my I was an agent at the time, um, and we were at the Euro Camp in, uh, in Treviso, Italy, and his name started buzzing. And there was I forget what, uh, where they went. I, I didn't go, but uh, you know, pretty much all of the NBA guys that were at the Euro Camp drove um, s- somewhere in Italy to, to watch him practice. Uh, and I remember my dad coming back and being like, "Hey, this kid, this kid's legit. I mean, he's you know, he's you know, he's six ten, he's skinny as heck, but he's versatile and." Um, yeah, he might be worth you know taking a flyer, and that's when it all kind of started. And uh, he kind of kind of filled me in, uh, you know, along the way of what was going on. Um, but yeah, hey, that that one worked out pretty good, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'd say. But wait, at, at the time, was it considered? I mean, look, looking back on it, considered a a risk at that point, or not because of where he was drafted? Yeah, it was definitely a risk. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of information on him. You know, there, there was a small sample size to scout him. Mean, he's playing in second division Greece, which is just a horrible league. It's like playing in like a men's league, really. Um, and so, I mean, you, you know, you're finding this young kid that really isn't proven. Um, you know, th- there wasn't any medical information uh, given. I, there, there were, I, I think, I think they were trying to, to manipulate it to, to get him to certain teams. And so, I mean, the Bucks never got the me- the medicals for Giannis. And so, just that alone was a risk. You know, taking a guy. Where they take him at 15, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a pretty high pick, and you don't, you don't know if this guy's got you know bad medicals or not. Um, I, I, from what I understand, what happened was he did he, he had the agent pretty much verbally promising that there was no issues, that that he that he had seen the medicals and that there was no red flags, and um, you know it, it wasn't a deal where like my dad was the only one that likes him and pushed it through, um, but he he did you know make a big case to John Hammond, who was the GM at the time, and. Um, yeah, they got it done. They, they all, they all agreed to take the risk and it, uh, you know, really, really panned out. As you evaluate the draft process. And I think that example with Giannis is, is, is spot on or a good example of what we see throughout, but it often seems to me that there's so much group think throughout the NBA that, that teams will love a guy, but say, you know what, no matter what, we're not taking them top five because we're going to get crushed because of the PR or maybe because of what our owner is thinking. So how much does all of that, you think, play play a role? The, the cat and mouse game, how much have you, I guess, that you've been privy to? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the, the one the one part about the owners, I think that's interesting because, I mean, owners a lot of times are, are more of like a fan than, than a true basketball person, right? And so uh, I think owners are pretty, uh, you know, impressionable about what's going on in the media um and so yeah i think i think general managers need to take a look at that is okay you you need to kind of take a guy with what his market value is to a certain extent um but uh yeah no it's it's tough i mean because you've got i mean like for for example like this year um i think cole anthony you know if you look in the media i mean he's top five top ten everywhere i I don't i don't think nba scouts are evaluated in the same way i think he's much lower um but i mean i could easily see an owner stepping in draft night being like all right we're, we're picking at 15 we got to take Cole Anthony. This guy was projected to be a top five pick. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just sort of, you know, hypothetical situation that, that kind of, you know, would, would be a good example of that. Speaking of the, the, the pre-draft process and everything that goes involved with that, I've been told that the interviews at the Combine are now the single most important part of that, that above the measurables, it's the interviews. Um, what type of advice would you would you give kids as they as they are going through the interview process at, at the combine and, and how valuable are the interviews? Um, well, you know, going you know, kind of putting my agent hat back on. I mean, we, we would do a lot of prep work, uh, you know, sort of uh, media training, interview training for guys. And uh, my, my whole approach on that is, hey, let's you need to kind of tell me your whole story, your whole background. You ever been in trouble? What you know, we need to figure out what what are some of these. Uh, tough questions that are going to come. Let's get ahead of it. And, you know, we try and figure out a way of, okay, we need, we need you to be yourself and we need you to be honest. Um, but we need to kind of angle this a certain way that you walk out looking good. And so um, every guy's background is different. Everybody's personality is different. And so it was a case by case deal. We just kind of, kind of just uh, try to try to get dig as deep as we could and just, you know, um, address, address any potential issues. Um, you know, from a team standpoint, um, you know, every team is doing it a little bit differently. Uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, these teams will drill these kids and see how they handle the pressure. I think that might be a little overrated. Uh, I mean, I think that would show, hey, as a kid, a, a good interviewer, which, you know, is, is a nice thing, but does that prove that he's a good player? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, other teams will have uh, uh, psychiatrists uh, lead the interview. 
that's a little bit interesting because now you're really digging into a kid's personality. Um, I, you know, I personally, I, I don't, I don't think it's the most important part. Obviously the, the, the talent level is the most important part. Medicals is really important. And then Intel work, uh, background work. I, I think those are the three things that I would value the most if I were a team. Are you a fan of, and, and do you think the, the question is relevant when teams ask kids, how many basketballs could fit in this room? <laughs> yeah, so some of my players will, will come. will come back with these crazy questions, and I, I can't even answer these questions. So, kind of like whether, what, what are you trying to prove? You're just trying to embarrass the kid, you know. And I don't. know, I'm not a big fan of all that stuff, all the gimmicky, you know, uh, riddles and, and whatnot. And I, I just don't really understand what the what the teams are trying to accomplish. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know, you know, part of it is to say how intelligent is this kid and what's his you know decision making process and can he handle pressure. But I don't know. I, I think uh, I think everybody's getting a little too cute with that stuff. I'm, I'm interested in, in the in the draft process, and then, you know, I was I grew up in Philadelphia, and I'll, I'll never forget the the draft promise that Larry Brown made Larry Hughes, and then Paul Pierce was on the board, and then the Sixers took Larry Hughes instead of Paul Pierce. How do how often are draft promises kept, and and do you have any specific stories about when it was kept or or wasn't with one of your guys? Um, let's see here. You know, it, it has happened a number of times. Um, you know, I, I've sort of got two, two different parts on that. I mean, from a team standpoint, I mean, the only time I would make a promise if I were a team is if there were an underclassman or, or an international player that was debating whether to stay in the draft or not. And if you needed to guarantee him to have him stay in, um, that, that would probably be the only scenario I, I would, I would lock a guy down. Um, other than that, I mean, like the Paul Pierce example is, is perfect. Is you don't know who's going to be there. You don't know what trade opportunities are going to be there. And if you've guaranteed a player, you've pretty much you know put yourself in shackles to, to not make any movement and uh, and maximize your opportunities. And so I, I think uh, as a rule of thumb, I would be hesitant to do that if I were a team. Uh, from the agent standpoint, I don't have any uh, I don't have any good examples. You know, I I can't remember any of my players having guarantees. I mean, we, it was more of uh, you know we have teams that were showing significant interest. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we kind of knew going into the draft, hey, this is a good, this is a really strong possibility. We're we're in you know heavy communication with the, the team throughout the draft, uh, but I, yeah, I never I never dealt with promises that much. And, and part of it, I, I didn't push it that hard either. You know, I, usually with my players, my approach was, hey, let's uh, let's not let's not be too too cute here and try and control the draft that much. Let's uh, let's let's try and get everybody to like you and get you as high as you possibly can. Uh, you know, the higher you get in, the, the more invested the team is. That was generally my approach, rather than trying to uh, you know control things. To that to that point, how often are agents manipulating the draft, and you know whether it's marketing their clients or trying to put out false information? How often were you seeing it? Obviously, not necessarily from you, but but throughout the league. Oh, it's it's really it's really common, and uh, and and I think a lot of agents, you know, think that if they can sort of stir the pot, you know, they have more influence and they're more powerful. Um, my approach was a, a good agent is organized and and just kind of manages the player's business well, right, rather than stirring the pot. I mean, I you know, for example, if I um, if I represented a player that um, had fired his agent that was already on a team. You know, I wasn't always quick to say, hey, let's get you out of here. Let's look at what, we're, uh, you know, the, I think the best option is how do we make this work here? If we can't, then we make a move. Whereas I think a lot of other agents, they try and move players a lot because I think it shows that they're powerful and they could, they could get stuff done. Um, you know, but it's, I, I don't, I don't think it's the right way, but it does happen. You know, and, and you get, you get agents during the draft, um, you know, trying to, pinpoint which pick and team that, that a player goes to that happens quite a bit and you know sometimes it is necessary to dodge certain teams and um i just think it's overdone and i know on the site babcockcoops.com there's there's mock drafts there's scouting reports just what is and i want to get into the, the latest mock draft what what is your day-to-day process like now um, you know, so we write different articles, but for the most part, you know, we're, we're operating, uh, me and my staff, um, covering the draft. I mean, we're essentially operating as if we were an NBA team, that we need to know these draft prospects at like the back of our hand. And so, I mean, we're watching a lot of film. Uh, we're traveling a lot, going to some different games, uh, working the phones, dealing with agents and doing background work and 
uh, essentially we're operating as if we were NBA personnel. Mm-hmm. All right. So are there, give me a guy or two that you, that you're higher on than the other draft folks out there. Uh, Obi Toppin for one. I mean, everybody seems to start coming around, but I've been high on him all year. Um, I've got him third in, in our mock draft right now. I, I think he's really good. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he seems to be, you know, everybody's been somewhat slow to warm on him, but I, you know, I think I got, I got ahead of that one pretty good. Um, I think of another guy. Um, and he's the one that comes to mind right off the bat. I, I also like Zeke Naji from Arizona. Um, he, uh, I've been on high, high on him since I saw him, uh, saw him at the Iverson classic last spring and got intrigued with him. And then, uh, I went to an Arizona practice before the season and, and, you know, I thought he was legit and he's really, he's really done well this year. And, uh, again, I think another guy, everybody's kind of coming around on him, but I, I got ahead of him pretty good. Mm-hmm. And Najee's just such a special talent just off the court. I mean, his, his ability on the piano and he's a charming kid and he's so bright. And, um, I know, I know as an Arizona guy, you got to be excited about, about his prospects. You, you mentioned Cole Anthony earlier and you said that, you know, around, around NBA scouts, they're not as high on Cole Anthony as, as, uh, some in the media have been, um, what would you say are the, uh, are the Cole Anthony negatives? Yeah, with Cole, I mean, Cole's a talented kid. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and I really don't want to, you know, kill the kid too bad. But, I mean, some of the things with him, um, just the impression that he, he's a, you know, somewhat of a self-serving player. I mean, he's looking for his own shot. I'm not sure he's a great teammate. Um, you know, the intel on him isn't isn't that great. I mean, it's not been, it's not been like there aren't, aren't like real crazy skeletons in the closet or anything like that. Um, I'm just not sure he's he's the guy you want leading your team. And, uh, you know, that's how I feel personally. I think there would be some other other guys that would evaluate him differently. Uh, but I do know there's a number of NBA teams that feel the same way I do. And, um, and it's more of these deals that you're, you're comparing your evaluation to, what, you know, how much he's being hyped up in the press. And that, that happens quite a bit where it's like, hey, do you like the kid or do you, you know, do not? And, like, another kid is Tyrese Maxey, who's a great kid. He's a good player. I've got him early second round. Everybody else has got him, like, top ten, lottery, and it's, and it's one of these things, like, I, I don't dislike this player. I just don't like him as much as everybody else does. And, uh, and so it sort of makes it an interesting conversation um, when you're evaluating a guy and, and he's being uh, overrated or underrated. You know, it sort of changes your tone depending on what's what's out there. All right, so let's, let's stay with Maxi. What makes him a, a second-round pick in your mind? Um, so he, how I see him, and, I, and I've seen him a lot, is he's an, he's an undersized two-guard that isn't super quick and he's not shooting at, at, you know, the high rate. I mean, I think he's shooting, you know, the low thirties from three. Um, I, I still think he translates to that well. You know, I, I, I question if he could play point guard. So now we're looking at a six, two shooting guard that, that's got a low release. That's not shooting that well. Um, that isn't, that isn't like a blow by you, you know, uh, speedy type guy. And so I think his strengths of, of you know, being a high character kind of gutsy kid. Um, you know, I think, I think that those things translate. I just, uh, you know, compared to his evaluation on other media mock drafts and whatnot, um, I, I just don't see him in, in the same same range as everybody else. Yeah, and when and when you mentioned Cole before, and your your mock draft was updated on February 10th, you had him at 23 to Miami. Is it more about the slot that you could see him going around number 23, or is it Miami and that organization that would be so good of a match? Yeah, so I mean, I do the mock drafts, you know, how, where, I, where I'm actually simulating the drafts. So I mean, you know, pretty much, okay, I start Golden State number one. I pull up their um, their, their 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 salary structures, their, their roster, their depth chart, um, and I and I kind of put myself in Bob Myers' shoes for for a few minutes, and um, I go pick by pick, and just sort of I, I try and do a balance of I, I try to consider guys' market values, but also you know, sort of like who I would look at uh, for that team and. Um, you know, team fit, style play, um, you know, who else they have under contract for, for multiple years. And so with Cole specifically, um, I mean, he easily can go higher than that. Um, but I think with Miami, you know, I think they need some depth at guard. I mean, Miami has a culture where they're not really afraid to take take a kid uh, and sort of, you know, reshape him. Um, so I, I actually think Miami and, and Cole could be a good fit. When you run down the the first round of your mock draft, as well as I think how a lot of people feel about this draft, there are a bunch of bigs that are really, really interesting. And 
Uh, I'm curious in general, and you go through the list, and whether it's James Wiseman or Anyeka Kongwu at, at USC or Isaiah Stewart for Washington. You just, you just wanted to say his name, right? You just wanted to say his name <laughs> to prove that you could pronounce it. Always. <laughs> yes, yes, that was the okay. Goal. I feel, I but feel. no, no, Toro, Toro, Minnesota. I mean, you you go down the list of there's so many interesting bigs in this year's draft, and I'm curious, just in general, how you view these guys, how you sort of rank them, but most importantly, where you see sort of the future of of the big man with these talented bigs coming into the league over the next couple of years. Yeah, and this is a topic that that's commonly brought up, um, you know, and. and you know, closed circles, you know, I'm going to be people. And they're also, you know, in the press, um, you know, and, and the way we evaluate big men, it, it certainly has changed. It's a different game. And so, I mean, you know, the, the, the time of a big bodied, slow footed, uh, big guy, you know, he better be pretty dang good. Cause it's just, it, there's some issues there and as far as him keeping up with the game. I mean, the, you know, one big thing is the way the game's being uh, refereed. I mean, like, like, for example, a high pick and roll, you know, it used to be you could hedge and be very physical to slow down that guard. You can't do that anymore. And so now all of a sudden a big man in a high pick and roll is going to get exposed because there can't be any kind of physicality. And so if he's not quick enough to, to keep up, um, you know, you're going to get burned every time. And so, um, you know, James Wiseman is the, is the, the one guy. I've had him number one, uh, one or two pretty much all year. Um, you know, and he, he's, he, he's a true center. I mean, he's seven foot one, big guy. Um, I, I just I have confidence in his ability to move his feet, and I think he's much more skilled than people realize. So on the offensive end, I, I actually think he's going to be a guy that's going to end up shooting threes. Um, and then on the, on the flip side of that, uh, a player that I, I've always really liked that, that is kind of just getting uh, short end of the stick with how the game's playing is Udoka Azubuki from from KU, and mm-hmm. he's a throwback big. I mean, a big big body, powerful center. Um, and he's just, I mean, I've got him at, at 53 right now. And I think if this were 20 years ago, this guy would probably be a lottery pick. And it's just bad timing for him, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and then these other big guys that you mentioned, uh, I mean, think aside from Vernon Carey, um, who, who's more of a, you know, a, a big bodied five, but he, he can't shoot it. Uh, but these other guys, Kung Wu and uh, Isaiah Stewart and uh, Oturu, if this were 20 years ago, all these guys would be power forwards, but now they're classified right. as, as, as fives. And that's where it's really just interesting of, you know, how, how do guys fit in today's game? And you know, we're just having to evaluate it, you know, much differently than, than we did in, uh, in years past. And, you know, growing up with my dad, I mean, you know, kind of shadowing him as a kid, totally different, different, different evaluation game. So do you think that there could be, one team, two teams, three teams zigging or zagging while the rest of the league is doing the opposite? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I, I don't think the big man is dead by any means. I mean, you know, the Houston Rockets, you know, going with their, their extreme small ball. Um, I, I, I'm not a huge believer in, in going that extreme with it. I just think, you know, there's value in a big man. It just, he has to kind of check some different boxes than he did before. Um, you know, you, you know, generally with like a little bit more skill than he did. Uh, and he's just got to move his feet a little bit. Um, and so, you know, if you really go across the board, I mean, team, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, big men that, that are, are, are playing huge roles for their teams. I mean, um, I mean, we just saw Rudy Gobert in the all-star game. I mean, that guy, that guy's a giant and he's, he, he's a, you know, top player for, for a good team. Um, you know, and two years ago, I mean, we forget DeAndre Aiden was the number one pick in the draft. I mean, he's not that much different than, than Wiseman. I mean, they're not, they're not, totally the same but i mean they're, they're pretty similar as far as their body movement and i actually think wiseman is a little more skilled uh, than aiden but uh you know so what we'll see i mean it's definitely it's definitely something that we all need to kind of keep a pulse on and see how the, how the game continues to evolve um I, I hope it doesn't go away from the big man too much all right i want to want to talk about james wiseman two questions one do you think in his combine interviews he'll be asked why'd you quit and two how do you think he fits in on and off the court with the Warriors' culture and their stars? Yeah, I mean, they'll definitely ask him all the questions about what went on and um, put put him on the spot. Uh, I mean, if I were, if I were advising him, and he's with Jeff Schwartz, Jeff's really experienced. I mean, they'll, they'll tell him just, hey, just be honest. You've got nothing to hide. I mean, a team is not is not going to hold it against you because you're. You know, your mom got moving expenses. I mean, if if, uh, if teams were evaluating players on who took bribes, 
I mean, there wouldn't be anybody drafted. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> after, after after the FBI investigation, I mean, I think it's pretty clear of like how the how the, the layer K goes with high school recalls recruiting. And, um, and so I, I don't see that that holding him back at all. Uh, as long as he's, uh, you know, straightforward and honest about it, he'll be fine on, on that. Um, as far as with Golden State, I actually like the fit for him. I think you, you would put him in uh, into the five spot. Um, you know, he's a long-term building block, young guy, but, he, you know, he can play a primary role for them uh, day one. Whereas opposed if you, you know, if you took like Edwards or LaMelo Ball, I, you know, I just don't see the fit that well, you know, right away. Uh, I mean, they easily could go with one of those other guys. I think Obi Toppin could fit there pretty well. Um, Wiseman just seems like the natural fit. Gives them some rim protection, you know, big body, um, you know, rim runner, um, you know, to put around all those shooters and playmakers. I mean, it seems like it, seems like it, it would work for me. Lamelo is certainly the most intriguing prospect, I think, in in this draft. I mean, watching him the last few years and forget the family stuff for a moment. Just you know, as a guy that we've been watching, you know, in the high school ranks, shooting from thirty five feet out, turning the ball over a ton, all that stuff. And then I know last summer, my friend Don McLean was was working him out, and he told me he was really impressed with Lamelo and you know, how LaMelo was playing. He was, uh, he was given some of, you know, he was given Casey Akpala fits uh, in last year's workouts. How are you evaluating LaMelo ball? How has he done uh, this past year overseas and, and where do you see him ultimately falling? Yes. Yeah, so I, I spent um, several days with him and his dad at the, the big baller brand uh, all American game in, in Las Vegas. They invited me to come out. Um, and so I, you know, I started evaluating him really, and I mean, obviously I had been exposed to all the stuff in the media and everything else, all the all the BS that we all saw. <laughs> and uh, and I didn't, I didn't think that highly of, of Lamelo. I mean, I thought he, he seemed like a pretty entitled kid, and um, you know, had had the bad body, and you know, I, I knew, you know, obviously had the deep range and, and playmaking ability, but I, I was skeptical. And uh, um, you know, I started getting a little bit intrigued. You know, spend those two days with him, um, and then. I did not go to Australia this year, but then I watched a ton of film, and he's uh, his body's starting to fill out a little bit. And it seems like he's maturing uh, quite a bit, and um, he's got he's got interesting size and, and his skill set. I mean, he's just got a knack to make plays. He's got the ball on a string. Um, you know, he's still I think there's still somewhat of entitlement there, which is uh, a little bit of a concern. He's got the bad body, even though it's filling out a bit, and he's not super athletic. He's more of a guy with length. And coordination and skill um, than, than speed, quickness, and explosiveness. So I think defensively is somewhat of a concern. And like you said, the the whole you know taking 35 foot jumpers and all that, um, you know that that's uh, he needs to continue to mature. And, and I think he, he likes to play hero ball and, and and make the hard play rather than you know making the easy play and, and, and being a reliable uh, lead guard. So I mean I you know I like him and I'm intrigued with him. Uh, but there are there are some some concerns and some risks there, and so I, you know right now we have him currently at six. Um, I, I I think if this were a big board, I would have him higher. That I think he's going to be in, in contention for pretty much all of the picks. Um, I, I just think there is some parity towards the top and, and throughout the first round, really, where it's going to be probably a lot more of team needs uh, pick by pick than it has been in years past. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see where Lowell will go because he really doesn't fit with that many teams towards the top. I mean, you go, you know, Golden State, Cleveland, Atlanta, Charlotte, Minnesota. I mean, he, he doesn't, all those teams have point guards that they're, they're seem like they're committed to. So we'll, we'll see where he falls. So one more question about prospects that I, that I have in regards to the point guard position, three guys with PAC 12 ties, I think are really interesting in this year's draft. Nico Mannion, who you currently have going eighth to the bulls. Um, Peyton Pritchard, who you have 52nd to the Hawks, and then Malachi Flynn, who's a Washington State transfer, obviously leading San Diego State to an undefeated season this year. You have him right now as uh, as as undrafted. Um, how would you break down those three prospects individually, and how how much do you think there's a likelihood that that Flynn ends up going, Flynn and Pritchard end up going in the second round? Yeah, so Nico, I, you know, I've been a big fan. I watched him a lot in his high school stuff. He's, he's a really talented kid. He's been struggling lately. And uh, I'm, I'm starting to get a little concerned with his shooting ability. You know, I, I went into this year thinking this guy is an elite shooter. I mean, I kind of, kind of penciled him in as, 
if the comparison is he's somewhere between Steve Nash and Luke Ridnour. I mean, I certainly don't think he's Steve Nash. I mean, he's a two-time NBA MVP. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's not fair to any kid, right? But he's mm-hmm. got, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, he's got a chance to be better than Ridnour, which is which is pretty good. Um, the, the the problem I'm having right now that I'm sort of juggling is, okay, with both of those guys, what opened it up for them is that they were big-time shooters. And, I mean, I mean, Ridnour, obviously Nash is one of the best shooters of all time, but Ridnour was a really knockdown, you know, shooter too. I'm, I'm not sure Nico's there. And if he's not – now all of a sudden, does his foot speed become a big issue? And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm having to do some more homework on him. I mean, I currently have him at eight. Um, I'm questioning if it's a little high for him at the moment, uh, but we'll see. You know, he's an Arizona guy. I, I, I'm, I'm rooting for him, so I'm, I'm hoping it's a deal mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, where, where he stays in that range. Uh, but I, you know, I got to do my job with some integrity here. So I'm, I'm, I'm needing to watch. He's one of the names I've kind of got high on the list of like I need to, I need to keep a firm pulse on him. Uh, I'll tell you something, Matt. Matt, an interesting thing before you finish answering that, I was just literally just got into a discussion with Casey Jacobson about this, and he said that it's his concern with Nico Mannion is actually shot selection that that it's his his shooting off the dribble that's been just horrific, right. and and right. it's not his shooting in general. And obviously, that's something you you know you have to put a ton of work into in order to sure, uh, sure. improve that skill set. No, that, that's interesting. I mean, it, you know, and he definitely shoots a lot of threes off the dribble. And I mean, I think, you know, the next level where he doesn't necessarily have to be the best offensive player, um, he could be a little bit more of a facilitator now, start getting some easy shots. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good point. And, and that's something that, uh, that's something I've thought about too. I mean, he, he's doing a lot off the dribble. Um, and, they, and they really, you know, Sean Miller, he, you know, he's kind of an old school coach offensively. And he really likes to, you know, he calls he calls a set every single time down the floor. They, they play more, they, they play two bigs. I mean, like Zeke Naji, for example, at, at the Iverson Classic that I was at, I saw him win the three-point contest. And, uh, you know, I guess an AU ball, I mean, he, he, you know, hit a ton of threes. I mean, he, the guy can shoot it. And uh, Sean Miller likes to use him, use him as a low post score. And so I think with Nico, he'd probably be better, better off with a more of a spread offense, pushing the tempo, being more of a facilitator and getting easy shots, kind of, kind of what like Casey's saying. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, it's, like I said, it's just we've, we've got a lot of homework still to do on, on all these kids. Um, <laughs> but in uh, uh, go, going back to those other Pac-12 guards, um, so I mean, I think with with Pritchard and Flynn, I mean, they're, they're both kind of in, in same spot. I think the issue is, um, you know, neither one of them are, are super quick. Uh, and, you know, Payton's uh, very ball dominant. I mean, he runs the show at Oregon. I'm not sure he's good enough to play that way in the NBA. He's going to have to kind of step back and be much more of a complimentary guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he's a tough kid. I mean, I think there's, I think he won like four state championships or something like that in, in high school. I mean, the mm-hmm. kid's just a tough kid. He's a winner. Um, sort of reminds me of uh, another Arizona kid, TJ McConnell, uh, just a better shooter. And so um, just kind of one of those guys, I, you know, I don't want to bet against him because he's probably going to claw his way in uh, just, just being a tough grinder. Um, and then Flynn, you know, I, he's right there. I mean, he's he's uh, he, he easily can get drafted. I mean, he's having a great year, obviously. Um, you know, it's just this is this is a tough year for point guards. I mean, it's it's pretty deep at that position. Well, let's do some quick hits. Spend just a few more moments with you. What's the ultimate scouting trip? Well, I did Maui this year. That that was awesome. I uh, I'm yeah, that'll work out there whenever I can I mean it's just it's it's uh it's sort of like a big high school gym you know they've they've had uh this year we had you know Anthony Edwards Obi top and I watched Michigan State KU was there I mean I was sitting on I had a media pass and they had a they had a media seat for me behind the behind the uh behind the basket but I go sit right behind Jay Billis and Bill Walden I'm sitting first row watching all these big time players and um wore a Hawaiian shirt one day I mean life was pretty good that week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how many how many experiences have you had with bill walton personally yeah so he he goes uh way back with my family so my uh, you know i mentioned earlier my uncle pete's first uh full-time job in the nba was an assistant coach with the san diego clippers bill walton was on that team and uh so my uncle pete you know got back with him since the early 80s and he, he knows our whole family and i i don't know him that well personally i know i know luke well uh from, from arizona but uh yeah no he's uh bill Walton's a character man <laughs> Yeah, I'd say. So, how did Rafer Alston become your favorite player? Yeah, so my dad, my dad's team, they drafted Rafer, um, and I just, I was, I just thought he was an interesting guy. The whole skip to my Lou thing, and you know, the New York background, and 
uh, when he came in, I just, I got to know him really well. And um, we wore the same size shoe and he was like, and one's main guy. He, I mean, I had, you know, on average 20 pairs of, of brand new and ones, you know, <laughs> when he, when he was on nice. the box. And so nice. it, uh, you know, I started wearing number 11 because of him and um, yeah, skip, skip's my guy. When you were in Arizona, you played with Channing Frye, Mustafa Shakur, Hassan Adams. Which of those guys did you think was going to be the best NBA player? You know, I, not to discredit Channing. I mean, he's had the great career. But in college, Salim Stoudemire was off the hook. He was so good. And, uh, you know, we, we played pickup, and our, our team was stacked. And I thought we were the best team in the country. And, and Salim was clear-cut the best player on the floor at all times. I mean, he, he was unstoppable. And, um, you know, that, that, was, that was the year, um, if I remember correctly, you know, like Morrison and J.J. Redick uh, really went off. Or maybe that was the next year. But, um, you know, watching J.J. at Duke, where they – I mean, all they did was run stuff, you know, run, run J.J. off screens. If Salim had been in that spot, I think Salim would have had an even better year than J.J. did. And, and um, not that Luke did a bad job with Salim. I mean, he had a terrific senior year. Uh, but I mean, I think we could have done even more to, to kind of get him going. Um, he was he was just so good. And unfortunately, he had some injury problems in the NBA, and it didn't it didn't you know, click quite as well. And he was undersized for a two guard the way he played, so it didn't translate that well. But as a college player, oh, he was he was off the hook. Is it as awesome as it would appear from the outside of being a basketball player at the University of Arizona? Oh, it's amazing. You know, so I uh, um, I was like a preferred walk on. I I had some injury problems before I transferred there. And, and so I went to, you know, I grew up in Arizona and so I had the opportunity to go there and, and be part of the team. And, uh, it, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, you know, I didn't even, didn't even really play and you just get treated like a rock star. And it is, it is truly a basketball school. And, uh, I just went to a game a couple of weeks ago there, USC at, at, uh, at U of A. And, um, you know, they've, they've, they've upgraded the, you know, McHale center. It, it is, it is a special place. Can you give us a couple things that, that Lute Olson taught you about the game that, that you still take with you to this day? Yeah, the biggest thing with Lute is uh, I just think he was really good at running a program. I mean, he, he was great. You know, he was a terrific recruiter. Um, he was great with the boosters. He just really, he was really just like a politician. I mean, and the best daddy he carried himself with class. Um, his practices were super organized. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know if there's a ton of things that I've learned from him, like uh, technically basketball wise. I mean, he was a good coach, but I think what made him a Hall of Fame coach is that he he ran he, he ran the, the the program and uh, the, the right way, and always had good players. And he put together good teams. Uh, I, I think I've talked to a number of people, like the media members and, and whatnot, in, in Tucson, uh, just about how many college coaches um, you know recruit the, the highest rated guys they can and just kind of make it work with with top talent. Uh, and Lute, you know, Lute was an aggressive recruiter and got top talent, but he put together put together teams, and I think that's important. Um, yeah, I mean, just the ultimate ultimate coach from that standpoint, as far as just being a leader of a program. The most unexpected, notable person that said to you, "Yeah, I, I know your dad." <laughs> um, I've I've been told by league by a league executive just this week that everybody everybody knows your dad everybody that there's like in the in from overseas to high school college the nba everybody knows and everybody loves your dad yeah no, i appreciate you say that it uh yeah my, my dad's a funny guy I mean, he's been around for a long time and he, he's got this personality he, he walks in the room he talks to everybody i mean no, nobody's a stranger to him so he's his network is 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 out of control and, and you're right i mean it, it goes to all ends of the world we, we go anywhere my mom gives him a hard time and anywhere we go he knows somebody and um, yeah, I, nobody's coming off the top of my head, but you know, like you said, it, he, he seems to know everybody at least a little bit. When's the last time you two disagreed on a player evaluation? No, probably this morning. We talk a lot and we exchange notes and stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, um, I'll, I'll the side. I mean, you know, he, he taught me the game, you know, again, I'm, I'm a coach's son. So my dad got into this more as a, as a coach and, uh, you know, learned the craft of being a scout. Uh, but I mean, I, I see the game like he does, you know, I'll go to a game with, without him being there. And, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll agree on players. And I think my mock draft would probably pre be pretty close to what his rankings are 
um, privately. And it, it's really, I mean, you know, we do talk about players. I mean, in, in an appropriate way. I mean, he's not, he's not, you know, giving me proprietary information from the Bucks or anything like that. But um, it's mostly just because we see the game the same way. He taught me the game. He taught me how to scout. Um, but we do, we do butt heads here and there. And uh, he's been doing this a long time, so he's a little hard headed at times, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, do you want to be in a front office? Yeah, no, when I first got the agency business, that's how this all kind of got started is uh, I dissolved by an agency um, based in the United States and an agency based in Japan. I, I sort of dissolved those and, um, you know, had, had a little bit of a, of a nest egg, you know, cushion to kind of explore something new for a little while. And I started scouting for uh, uh, Marty Blake and Associates. It was a scouting service that was put together by the NBA in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. But Marty yeah. passed away, but his son Ryan runs it now. And so I was doing that. I just volunteered to I called Ryan, who's been a good friend of our families, and said, hey, I'm looking to get into scouting, and, uh, you know, can I, can I scout for you for the year? And so I, didn't, I didn't get paid anything, and I just got media credentials through him and just started getting my feet wet on scouting. And the idea was to, to make myself uh, a little bit more marketable uh, to get NBA jobs. And, uh, you know, and then during that process, I got approached by Sports Illustrated uh, to write a series of stories on the draft from an agent's perspective. So I did that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I needed to kind of get things going a little bit, you know, money wise. And so I, I put together this plan of like, hey, why don't I, uh, why don't I, you know, create Babcock hoops and, and do the scouting, um, you know, do some media stuff. And then also I, I, I sort of like organically started doing some consulting because people were calling asking for help, um, you know, for my agent experience. And I just said, hey, you know, why don't you guys start paying me? Like if I'm going to be working on this and so I'm doing <laughs> yeah. all that stuff for Babcock hoops and, um, you know, and really, I mean, where where the, uh, the 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 lucrative part of it is the consulting, where I, I you know pretty much just provide advice, um, players, agents, teams, uh, different companies working in sports. Um, you know, it's just sort of uh, you know easy easy advice for me, and but you know, seeing I'm helping some people and I'm doing the scouting stuff, so um, that's how it got started. It was with a plan to work in the NBA, and um, the Babcock Hoops is just kind of taken on a, on a life of its own, really, in an unexpected you know fashion, and. Uh, but I'm definitely open to, to working for a team. It's just, it's got to be right. You know, I, I don't want to do it just to do it. Um, you know, but we'll, we'll see. This is the Rejecting the Screen podcast. And so we love to finish our interviews by asking our guests about a player they would choose to go ISO, reject the screen, take it himself to get a bucket, end a game, critical situation, life on the line, what have you. As it pertains to you, which guy would you choose to reject the screen of all the players you've you've scouted, maybe advised, maybe through Babcock Hoops as an agent, what have you? All those guys you came into to contact with. Who's the one guy? And you can't say MJ. That's our one rule for this that you would choose uh, to go that's to reject the screen and go. <laughs> um, let me think about this. Um, oh man, maybe it's Salim. Ooh. Hey, in college, in college, Salim, Salim was a bucket. I mean, he had he had this step back move. I mean, you just you couldn't guard it. I mean, it, it was he got it off whenever he wanted. I mean, he, he jumped back. I, you know, think about like James Harden step back, right? And this guy would do it. It felt like he was jumping back like six feet. It was nuts. Um, yeah, in college, I mean, for, for somebody I guarded, he, he was the hardest guy I've ever guarded. Um, and, and I in high school, I guarded you know. LeBron James, I worked out with Dwayne Wade and in the summer at Marquette. Sleeve Stoudemire in college, that guy, that guy was unreal. Wait, wait okay, all right, all right. that's usually the final question. We've actually never followed up someone's answer from rejecting the screen, but you just said in high school you guarded LeBron. So now I need to know the situation, <laughs> what it was like the night before when you knew that you were guarding LeBron, and then how it went. Yeah, so LeBron's a couple a year or two younger than me, uh, but obviously, I mean, he was he was big time. I mean, from from the get go in high school. Uh, so we I'd played against him a number of times. He uh, he'd play, I remember I think it was a tournament in Vegas. Um, he was playing for the Oakland Soldiers, um, and their team had um, who was on that team? Leon Poe was on that team. Uh, Marcus Williams, uh, the guard, Marcus Williams from UConn. Mm-hmm. Um, some other guys, but yeah, so LeBron, I think he was like a sophomore in high school, and I was a junior or senior. And uh, yeah, we had a couple, you know, a couple plays back, you know, back and forth where he guarded me, and I, you know, I guarded him, and I, I had a three on him. He, he missed a couple shots, so uh-huh. I got a, I got a, I got that go for me. And then we, uh, we also were at ABCD camp together, and 
it, it was funny. I actually wrote an article about this on, on Babcock Hoops. And for whatever reason, the, the referees at this camp, they, they were calling uh, offensive fouls a lot. And so I, I started trying to pick up on that and, and take charges. I, I took two or three charges from different players. And, and in a game uh, against LeBron, I tried to take a charge, and he, he dunked on me so hard. <laughs> and, uh, and it was like a packed gym. And, and that ABC camp is really when he – he kind of the, the media circuit started for him because he, he and um, he and Lenny Cook, who was the number one player in my class, yeah. mm-hmm. they had this they had this epic battle. And I, me and uh, Danny Grun- or Grunfeld's son Danny, uh, were sitting courtside watching that thing, and it was yes. uh, it was just it was, it was just an amazing amazing experience. And, I was there with um, you, Matt. I was there with yeah. you, buddy. That was awesome, was right? That? I mean, I, yes. that was uh, that was quite. I remember. I remember Anthony LeBron hit the uh, you know the thirty five footer to win the, right. the game. And I remember everybody in the camp came rushing out, like hugging him, Anthony Roberson, all those guys. Yeah. And I just remember yeah. thinking this guy has some type of magnetism that everybody in the camp is excited about him hitting a game winner. It's crazy. No, it was, oh, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was, uh, and, and, you know, in hindsight now, it's just a pretty cool story to have now, you know, uh, you know, being around, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, um, you know, kind of see, see, you know, his whole career unfold from there. So every time you see him, you say, "Hey, remember that three I hit on you in Vegas?" <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, he, he, I, I guarantee LeBron does not remember me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I suggest everybody goes to BabcockHoops.com, not just for draft stuff, but some great stories from Matt and others. So BabcockHoops.com is where you should go and read everything that uh, that Matt has going on. Matt, we really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. No, thanks, guys. Anytime. And pretty fascinating upbringing with his father, Dave, being a high school coach. And a lot of you know, kids are kids of coaches, but working his way up to now being with in the Bucks front office for over 20 years. And then his uncles, Pete and Rob, were, were both general managers and ran teams. His, his uncle Rob passed away from prostate cancer just a few months ago. And then taking the agent route that none of them actually wanted him to take. <laughs> But now he's in the talent evaluation business, which is more in line of what the family business was. It's interesting just having him grow up with this environment. I just can't imagine what that would have been like to grow up with with family members who are general managers. And you become an assistant GM in that family and you're a failure. Everybody else is right, uh, yeah, right. you know, running teams and all. But Matt's, uh, it's been unbelievable. And, and you, you pointed it out there that the Babcock Hoops is doing some, some really, you know, great stuff. In fact, they're, they're carving out a niche in the market where there's a bunch of mock drafts and everything that are up there, but there's certainly a source that I go to, uh, and try to use what, what Matt's been working on to, to start digging into the evaluation of prospects. And I really like what he had to say that, you know, teams or, or sometimes, the draft folks start to, you know, get together a collective mindset and he takes a different approach to it. Like if we don't like a guy, we'll, we'll think about him differently and move him down. You know, the fact that Cole Anthony's 23 on his board, that's wild to me. I mean, I, nobody has him ranked that low. Mm-hmm. Certainly not me. I think he's definitely a top three prospect, but I, but I hear his perspective and I, and I appreciate it. Yeah. But he also is doing the, the mock draft while talking to teams and, and putting himself mm-hmm. in those positions. So it's not just here's the, you know, 30 best prospects and he's going one through 62 for second round picks and moving guys in and out and a lot of international guys and, and taking the scouting trips, talking to teams, talking to agents, talking to players. So it brings, it brings an extra layer of that. All right. So you can go back and listen to all of these going ISO editions that we do every Thursday, about 45 minutes, an hour. And you're never going to feel like they're dated. I mean, this one, if you listen to it, you know, two months after the NBA draft, so, you know, months from now, then sure, <laughs> maybe. But you've got, yeah. but you've got, but you've got plenty of time. So you can go back and listen to the, the going ISO editions. I just tweeted out the Ryan Rosilla one the other day. I think the Peter Vesey one has gotten some good run again recently. Go back, check them out. Let us know your thoughts. Adam's on Twitter at Naismith Lived. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C O S L O V. On Instagram, we're working on it. At rejecting yeah. underscore the underscore screen. Slow build. I think we really need to pick up the hashtag game. And yeah, that you gotta pick up the hash we gotta pick up the hashtag game because that's how I've always been told that you put the post up and then the first comment 
should be a whole bunch of hashtags related to the post also mm-hmm. and, and seeing what's trending and and maybe too, you should get you your assistant bi- on it. I know and maybe some bikini shots from you, Noah, might also increase our exposure on Instagram. You know, come there for and Noah's certain, bikini shots. Certainly increase yeah, certainly increase the exposure. I don't know how many followers <laughs> we get, but certainly certainly increase the exposure. Also check out everything else that's going on on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On NBA, five days a week, Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, Nate Duncan every Monday, Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. Then of course your team every day all 30 teams 25 30 minutes every single day all 30 teams in the nba that is the locked on podcast network adam thanks bro you're the best